You're listening to a message from our Sunday morning service at Hayes Hills Baptist Church, where we seek to bring life-changing hope to an ever-changing people through the unchanging gospel. If you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit hayeshills.com. Our prayer is that this message would serve to equip and empower you to live as a follower of Jesus in conjunction with your belonging to a local body of believers. Well, we just wrapped up our series on 1 Corinthians, and for the next few weeks before we begin our next series, we are covering a variety of different topics. The one for this week is the doctrine of hell, which is something that can be very uncomfortable for us as Christians to wrap our minds around, and yet Jesus had much to say about this. And so we hope that this message serves as a blessing to you as we wrap our minds around this difficult concept. This morning's going to look a bit different. Uh, Normally, we are anchored in a single text, and we uh, walk through that text. Usually, we're working our way through a book of the Bible. Uh, But having completed uh, 30 weeks in 1 Corinthians, I thought it would be wise for us to take a few weeks, to take a 30,000-foot view of what the Bible teaches on a few topics. And so uh, this morning, we're going to look at the doctrine of hell, and then, uh, Lord willing, Uh, Next Sunday, we'll come back. We'll consider the doctrine of heaven and the intermediate state. That is, between the day that you die and the day Jesus returns. What what happens in between? So, Lord willing, we'll we'll look at that next week. And then in a couple more weeks, we'll turn to the book of Haggai, and we'll begin to walk through a study of Haggai. But uh, this morning, we're going to look at the doctrine of hell, and I'm I'm going to try to cover it in nine headings. And anytime I'm going to preach a nine-point sermon, everybody gets a little nervous. But I promise I'm going to get you out of here on time. Uh, We're going to move quickly. And I want to show you this morning three things that hell isn't. And then I want to show you six things that hell is. And so that's the roadmap for this morning. Three things hell isn't. And then six things that hell is. And, And the first thing I want us to see this morning is that hell isn't a problem. That hell isn't a problem. Many people think hell is a problem. They look at it and they say, how can a good and loving God send people to hell? Seems like a contradiction to say that he's gracious and merciful and forgiving and then watch him punish people forever in hell. Seems like a logical contradiction. And so often we are bothered by the doctrine of hell. But you know who isn't bothered by the doctrine of hell? Jesus. In fact, no one teaches on the topic of hell more than Jesus in the Bible. And so the question is, why are we so often uh, problem, like agonizing over this problem of hell? Why are we sometimes embarrassed by the idea of it? But Jesus seems to be unbothered and talking about it all of the time. That's because Jesus understands that hell isn't a problem. Hell is actually an affirmation that God is the just judge who will one day write every wrong. And that is an important truth for us to understand because believing in hell, if you understand it correctly, I promise you, it's not going to turn you into a mean-spirited and miserable person. If you understand the doctrine of hell correctly, in fact, rather than being mean-spirited and miserable, it will actually empower you to let things go and move on. And so most people think, oh, those people who believe in, you know, hellfire and brimstone, those are mean-spirited, miserable people, not, you know, happy, forgiving people, loving people like us. But what I'm going to show you this morning, I pray, is that it's actually just the other way around, that when you understand the doctrine of hell properly, 
That's what will empower you to let things go and move on with your life. And so what I want you to do this morning is I want you to imagine that you're 72 years old. Now, some of you may be here and you are like, I'd love to remember what it felt like to be 72. Um, Others of you, you've got some distance to get there, but I want you to imagine that you're 72 years old, you've worked, you've saved for retirement, and every time you meet with your financial advisor, he assures you you're set for life. And then one day you're watching the news and you see that your financial advisor has been arrested for financial fraud and running a Ponzi scheme. And you don't know in that moment whether you ought to cry out in rage and scream or whether you ought to just melt in tears of fear. And so you pick up the phone and you begin to frantically make phone calls trying to determine if your savings are intact. Only to discover everyone you talk to says, I don't have an answer for you right now. It's going to take some time to sort this thing out. And so you're left to wait. Days, weeks, months go by. Months filled with anxiety because you don't know what's going to happen to your money. And at the end of that, you hear that your money, your savings, it's all gone. What you worked hard for for 40 years, what you saved, all those plans that you had for retirement, they vanished. Now, think about what has been taken from you. 40 years of labor, all your dreams for the future. No one can restore that money to you and no one can give you the retirement that you had planned. And if your hope is that things are going to be righted in this world and that justice will be done, you're going to be sorely disappointed because there is nothing in this world that can restore that to you and can make it right. If you experience something like that, how how do you swallow that? I mean, that's the kind of blow that can sit you into a pit of misery and despair you're not able to climb out of because you're just thinking, man, this guy deserves to get it. And so imagine what it would feel like when you see him sentenced to 35 years in prison, only to then be released after two years, because after all, it was white-collar crime, and he's got good behavior. And you think to yourselves, I've lost 40 years of my life. I've lost my future retirement, and this guy only lost two years? And I'm just one of a multitude of victims. How is that fair? The only way you can let something like that go is if you understand that there is a day when that crook will be held accountable and that vengeance is not left to your hands, but to the Lord's and to understand that punishment will be rendered and that you have a future hope that is better than whatever retirement plans you may have in a new heaven and a new earth. And it is only in that understanding that you will be able to manage Think of the psalmist in Psalm 73 that we read from just a few moments ago. He looks out at the world and he says, God, this doesn't look right. The wicked, they're rich, they're flourishing. I've been good and it hasn't amounted to anything. Why have I been good when this is what has been left to me? But then he goes to the sanctuary and it's there that he's able to make sense of things when he considers their end, that they will be swept away by the Lord in a moment into the terrors of God's judgment. And so Jesus is not embarrassed about the doctrine of hell because he realizes it is not a problem. It is an affirmation that God is the just judge who will one day hold everyone to account and he will right every wrong. But secondly, I want you to see this morning that hell isn't the absence of God. 
Hell isn't the absence of God. Sometimes I hear people say that. Hell is the absence of God. It's being outside of the presence of the Lord. Some people think that heaven and hell are kind of like yin and yang. You know, heaven is the good place where God rules and there's perfect, you know, happiness and and purity forever. And hell is the bad place where the devil rules and it's full of misery. That's how they think of the world. But the Bible teaches us that God is omnipresent, that God is everywhere. David says, I could ascend to the heights of the Himalayas and God is there. I could descend to the depths of the sea and the Lord is there. Where can my spirit go apart from you, O Lord? You're everywhere. The Bible teaches us that God is sovereign. That means he rules over all of creation. And so don't get it twisted. Satan is not a rival ruler to the Lord. Uh, Hell is not a place that Satan owns and he rules and he invites you in and says, hey, come see my home where I live and see if you like what I've done with the place. No, the, the Lord is present there. The Lord rules there. Hell is not owned by the devil. It is owned by the Lord. Hell is not a place the devil chooses to live. It is a place he is cast by the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the devil is under the Lord's authority always and everywhere. And so the reason that hell is so terrifying is not that God is absent, but that God is present in wrath. That's the truth. Hell is God present in wrath. I want you to think of the parting of the Red Sea. You got God present and he does a wonderful thing for the people of Israel. He he parts the sea and they walk through on dry ground. He rescues them. He's present for rescue and salvation and blessing. And then the Egyptians try it. And they find out that God is present for them in a different way, isn't he? God isn't present to bless and rescue the Egyptians, but God's wrath is there present upon the Egyptians and he causes the sea to collapse on top of them and they drown and die. Uh, You see, hell is so terrifying because God is there and he is there present in wrath. It's the reason in Revelation chapter 14, verse 10, there in Revelation 14, 10, we're told that if anyone worships the beast and his image, if anyone receives his mark, verse 10, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger. And he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the lamb. You hear that? They are tormented in the presence of the lamb. Hell is not the absence of God. It is God present in wrath. Third, I want you to see that hell isn't for the worst people. Hell isn't for the worst people. We tend to think, you know, hell is for the the bad people. Heaven's for the good people. But uh, that's not what the Bible teaches. That's not Christianity at all. In fact, it's something quite the opposite. If we believe that that is true, if we believe that hell is where the bad people go and heaven is where the good people go, then we would believe in works righteousness. 
We'd believe that you could earn your salvation. The reason you're in heaven is because you're one of the good ones who did good things. But the Bible teaches that we aren't justified based on our own merit, as we sang earlier this morning. We're, we're based on all sufficient merit, not of who we are and what we have done, but the merit of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done for us. And so hell isn't for the worst people. Hell is for unrepentant people. And that means the murderer who truly repents and places their faith in Jesus will spend eternity in heaven. While the all-around good guy who spends his life in the Peace Corps, caring for the poor, with a sterling reputation, who does not put his trust in Jesus, will spend eternity in hell. And that may make you kind of scratch your head and think, man, that doesn't seem fair. That doesn't seem right. How could that be? And so if that's where you are, I just want you to see that this is exactly what Jesus teaches in Luke chapter 18. If you've got your Bible in front of you, you might want to turn there. In Luke chapter 18, verse 9, we're told that Jesus told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And they treated others with contempt. And so Jesus begins this parable in verse 10, and he says, Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes up to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus teaches there is very clear. The good guy, Pharisee, is not justified in God's sight, even though he's done his works and he boasts of them. While the sinful tax collector is justified in God's sight, not because he is better than the Pharisee, but because he understands his need and cries out for mercy. Hell isn't for the worst people. It is for unrepentant people. And if that still doesn't seem fair to you, I just want you to know that not only do I want to show you these three things that hell isn't, I want to show you six things that hell is. And the first thing I want to show you that hell is, is that hell is deserved. Hell is deserved. Uh, those of you who know me know that NBA basketball is my love language. Uh, you could inject that stuff straight into my veins. I'd take it. And from 2001 to 2012, there was this guy who played in the league named Brian Scalabrini. And uh, during that time, Kobe Bryant was a big thing. He was known as the Black Mamba, and uh, Brian Scalabrini uh, was this large white dude, kind of awkward with red hair, and so people jokingly referred to him as the White Mamba. And Kobe Bryant was a great player. Scalabrini was decidedly mediocre. In fact, um, as an NBA player in his best season, which was 2003, he contributed to 1.7 win shares. If you're not familiar with advanced metrics, the way this works is uh, wind shares is a stat that tries to determine how much an individual player contributes to the team's success. 
And so what the stat is saying is that if Scalabrini hadn't been on his team in 2003, the team would have won 1.7 fewer games. Now, to put that in comparison, that's his best season of his entire career, and it ranked him 225th in the NBA that year. So in his best year, his career year, he was roughly the eighth best player on the average NBA team. Decidedly mediocre. Well, Scalabrini retires, and he loves basketball, and so he begins playing wherever he can. He, he's playing in these rec leagues, and, and one night he scores 60 in his game at the Y, and he posts on social media, you know, had a pretty good game tonight, put up 60. And you know how social media is. People are jumping, man, you're terrible. You're washed up. That's the YMCA, you know, I could beat you. And so Brian Scalabrini did one of the things that I think is the greatest that has ever been done in the history of humanity. He just says, well, why don't you come play me one-on-one? -on -one? And he held what is known as the Scallenge. You can look up the video this afternoon on YouTube. I promise you it's worth your time. And what Brian Scalabrini did is this old washed up past his prime pro is he begins to take all comers from New England. He says, just submit your videos and I'll take the best of you one-on-one. -on -one. And so guys start submitting the videos. And the very first one, I mean, these are quality basketball players, guys who played on scholarship at schools like Syracuse. The very first guy, Syracuse basketball player, he's coming in with his swagger. He thinks he's going to take this washed up NBA player and show him what's what. And I love it because Scalabrini just mops the floor with these guys. And they come in with all this swag and they are immediately humbled and put in their place. And that's how life goes, you know. I mean, Scalabrini, one of the best lines in the whole thing is to one of the guys, he says, you know, the problem is I'm closer to being LeBron than you are to being me. <laughs> and, and see, we work that way, don't we? We tend to compare ourselves to those who are around us. And these guys are filled with all kinds of swagger because they're looking around, they're saying, I'm the best basketball player I know. I beat everyone I play with. I'm pretty good at this. And I see you, Brian. I see you on the NBA floor. I see you compared to those guys and you're, you're decidedly mediocre. And not only that, you can't even play in the NBA anymore. You're old, you're slow, you're washed up, you're a has-been. I can take you. I'm pretty awesome. But the problem was they were using the wrong standard, wasn't it? Uh, they were comparing themselves to guys who had never sniffed the NBA. And once they are in the presence of someone who actually played, even though he has passed their prime, they learn they are not nearly as talented as they thought. And the same is true for you and me. We think, tend to think that heaven is what we deserve, isn't it? We think I'm a pretty good person. You know, I'm not like those people. I don't, I don't cheat on tests. I don't cheat on my spouse. I don't cheat on my taxes. But we're using the wrong standard. See, the standard for heaven isn't being better than those people. The standard for entering heaven is perfection. The standard for entering heaven is Jesus Christ himself. And when we look at the Lord, we find not only does he never cheat, he never lies. He never loses his temper. He is always generous and gracious and merciful. He is never stubborn or stingy. And when we match ourselves up to Jesus Christ, when we use that standard, we see that we do not measure up. We get dunked on by Jesus harder than any of those scrubs by Scalabrini. And so what we see in the Bible over and over again is that hell is deserved. But secondly, I want you to see this morning, and I need you to see this morning, that hell is close. We like to pretend that death is something that happens to other people. 
It's not going to happen to us. I've been praying recently that the Lord would just remind me that I'm dying. My time is short. Because you know, the truth is, every time you get in your car, you're only one reckless driver away from death and judgment. Every day, you're one lightning strike away, one cardiac event, one slip and fall away from death and judgment. Hell is close to each of us. And hell is also crowded. We like to think that hell is reserved for the scummiest people on the planet, and so it's going to be sparsely populated. Most of us will end up in heaven. But Jesus says quite the opposite. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 13, Jesus says, The gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who find it are what? Many. He says, yeah, you think that it's just a few terrible people that are going to go to hell, but the reality is many will wind up in hell. In fact, Jesus continues in verse 14 of Matthew chapter 7, and he says, enter by the narrow gate. The gate is narrow. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are what? Few. A hell is close and hell is crowded. And fourth, I want you to see this morning that hell is awful. I hear people say things like, man, that's cool as hell. That's fun as hell. And I wish I could just brush that off as ignorance and bad language. But my heart aches because they do not know what is awaiting. The writers of the Bible use phrases to describe hell like it's a place of chains of gloomy darkness. It's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, anguish. Jesus describes it as a place where people are tormented by fire that is outside of them and consumed by parasitic worms that are inside of them. And whether that is literal or metaphorical language, it doesn't get any less awful, folks. Because Jesus' point is that hell is a place where people are tormented both outside and within. It is a place of excruciating pain. Hell is awful. Now, there are degrees to that pain. Uh, sometimes people say, well, uh, there, there's a hot place in hell reserved for, and, you know, you enter the person's name, you know, Hitler, Bin Laden, whoever. And, and that is a biblical idea. Uh, Jesus makes clear, if you want to write down the references, both in Matthew chapter 11, verse 22, and in Luke chapter 20, verse 47, that there are degrees of punishment in hell. There in Matthew chapter 11, verse 22, Jesus says to the crowd, he says, it's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment than it will be for the people of Tyre and Sidon. It's going to be worse for you on the day of judgment than for the people of Sodom. There are degrees of judgment and wrath from the Lord based on our decisions and choices in this life. But I don't want you to get it twisted. Hell is going to be awful for everyone. Because God is present there in wrath. And that awkwardness, that, that awfulness is not just for a moment. Because hell is eternal. 
Hell is eternal. Some people see hell as a problem and their solution is a view called annihilationism. It's the idea that, you know, the the people who trust in Jesus, they're going to live forever with the Lord in a new heaven and a new earth. But those who do not trust in Jesus, God's just going to annihilate them. They're going to cease to exist, be destroyed. And that's easier to accept than the idea that, you know, people are going to be tormented forever. But Jesus makes clear in Matthew chapter 25, verse 46, that there are only two options that await each of us. There is either eternal life or eternal punishment, one or the other. And the annihilationist will be quick to say, well, yeah, but being annihilated is eternal punishment. You cease to exist. You're never going to exist again. But that doesn't make sense of the language we find in the Bible. Jesus describes hell as a place of unquenchable fire, fire that is never extinguished. He describes it as a place where, quote, their worm does not die. There is parasitic worm inside them that is consuming them, but never ends that process of consuming them. It's just always there bringing torment and discomfort within them. It's why the scriptures speak of the smoke coming from the, the fire that is consuming their flesh, rising up forever in the presence of the Lord. Hell is not some momentary judgment in which sinners are snuffed out, never to be seen or heard from again. Hell is a place of eternal suffering and torment. But I'm here to tell you this morning, most importantly, that hell is avoidable. Hell is avoidable. You know, the, the truth of the Bible is that hell is avoidable not by you being better or doing better, not by who you are and what you've done, not by your works, not by your merit, but hell is avoidable because of who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. You see, the reality is that every sin will be punished, must be punished, because God is just. And so God the Father, in his infinite wisdom, developed a plan of rescue, a way that he could spare sinners like you and me while still punishing our sin. And his infinitely wise plan, it came at quite the cost. It cost the life of his own son, God the Son, Jesus Christ. Jesus stepped into the world and he took on flesh and lived a perfect life so that he could go to a cross and die and take the punishment that you and I deserve on account of our sin. Jesus was buried in a tomb, but on the third day he rose from the dead. And he now lives and he offers forgiveness of sins. He offers eternal life instead of eternal punishment to all of those who would put their hope and their trust, not in the fact that they're going to get their act together, but in the fact that Jesus has had the Father's wrath poured out on him so that we might be spared, so that we might not only be forgiven, but adopted into God's family. And granted a new hope, new joy as children of God. And so if you're here this morning and, and you know, like you, you don't have a saving relationship with the Lord. 
Like there is still unfinished business between you and him. You haven't put your hope and your trust fully and firmly in him. Would you do that today? It really is both as simple as crying out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, a sinner. I know I've made a mess of things and I need you to save me. I need you to change me. I need your help and your rescue. But it's also as complicated as turning away from running your life on your own terms and daily deciding to follow Jesus. And so would you do that today? If you do, you'll find that you'll get a lot more than simply forgiveness of sin. All that guilt and all that shame that you feel that haunts you in the quiet moments of life. When you put your head on the pillow at night and you can't go to sleep because those visions come back to you. You will find if you put your trust in Jesus, that guilt and shame begins to fade into the background as you experience total forgiveness. All the disappointments in life that have hit you hard, so hard that you don't know that you can ever let them go. You will find that if you put your hope and your trust in Jesus, you will be able to let those things go. You'll be a more forgiving person, a more easygoing person, because you understand that vengeance doesn't have to be taken into your hands, but is taken care of by the Lord. And you will understand that the best dreams you had in your life, those dreams that have been shattered and tossed in the trash, and you have spent days weeping over them, that there is a future that is far better in that new heaven and new earth where you will rule and reign with King Jesus forevermore. You see, the good news is that because of Jesus, hell is avoidable and heaven is accessible to you. And it's to heaven that we'll turn our attention next week. Would you pray with me? Thanks for tuning in to the Hayes Hills Podcast Network. Feel free to follow us for more content. And if you'd like to learn more about our church, you can visit us at hayeshills.com.